When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Magazine podcast. I'm Jay Elwis, the producer, and I bring you politics. Well, I'm glad you say that because it's not very often you get to talk about on a podcast the gravity model of trade. And culture. I don't know if I should be saying this really, but you're sort of inventing reasons why you instinctively like something. And later in this broadcast, we hear from the writer and philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah, whose new book, The Lies That Bind, confronts the question of how social identities are formed. And what happens if we try to change how others see us? Again, this is one of these places where you can't just do it on your own. If you want to change the understanding, you're going to have to engage in cultural politics. You're going to have to say, look, our country's going to work better if we don't think of it in those ways and if we think of it in these other ways. It's a fascinating discussion, so do please stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, I'm here in the studio with Alex Dean, our politics correspondent, and also Samir Rahim, Prospect's culture editor. And first to you, Samir, you've been turning your attention today uh, and this week to the subject of literary prizes. Yes, it's the season of literary prizes. We just had the Man Booker shortlist announced. Um, There's also the Alternative Nobel Prize, which is uh, being launched because the Nobel Prize for various scandal-ridden reasons um, isn't being awarded this year. And, uh, And it's interested me because... Um, I'm judging a prize this year myself. So um, just a few minutes ago, in fact, I emailed um, the organiser of um, the Costa Prize, um, judging the poetry competition. And I wondered, as I was going through all these books of poetry, putting them in piles of definitely yes, maybe, absolutely not, and lots of different piles in between and shifting through them, what a sort of odd process it is to rank literature in the way that you know you would rank a runner at the olympics and i sometimes wonder although i think prizes are very useful things when it comes down to it they can be quite easily taken down because um, when you come to justify your decisions as to why x is better than y when i come to the meeting and i'll have the other judges who have their own opinions of course often it feels like you're um i don't know if i should be saying this really but you're sort of inventing reasons why you instinctively like something. Um, Particularly with poetry and with fiction, when it is so personal, certain technical things you can talk about, but really when something really speaks to you, um, then uh, it is often very difficult to explain. And certainly when you're trying to say, well, this speaks to me more and also is a technically better put together book of poetry. And so that adds up to this. But for somebody else, well... 
it doesn't speak to them at all, then how can you even make the argument? So it's something I'm struggling with right now. But that's not to say that you don't get very popular works of literature, which for some reason, whatever it is, lots of people buy and want to read. So subjective though it may be, there is nevertheless, occasionally at least, a consensus that something's really good. Something It's more interesting really when, when you do have things which have not won prizes, um, have not been um, uh, given official uh, imprimatur of approval or reviewed particularly well, but, but somehow seem to do extraordinary well. You know, the Elena Ferrante series, no one no one gave that a prize. It just spoke to enough people and then it developed a momentum uh, of its own. The Karl of A. Knausgaard series, which is just coming to its end now uh, after six volumes. Um, similar, perhaps. And I think in some ways there are the m- most interesting uh, kinds of success. Um, whilst the, the, the prize process, while it's necessary, I think, because it, it does allow people to recommend things that you may not have seen before, um, in some ways is, is a little bit artificial. So we'll wait uh, uh, with bated breath for the results of the Costa. You don't feel like exclusively revealing the winner now, do you, Samir, by any chance? Or? Uh, well, I don't know the winner. We haven't got to the judging panel discussion uh, bit yet, but um, I picked three books I thought could possibly win, but I'm sure others will on the panel will have their own opinion as well. Well, good luck to all of those entrants for the Costa. And we now go over to um, Alex Dean, who's also here in the studio. Um, Alex, uh, your diet of raw Brexit has been continuing and you've been looking into the different types of deal that Britain might strike with the EU. And from what you were saying upstairs earlier, there's one particular variety of deal that we can now rule out. I think... I take objection to this idea of a Canada Brexit. After Theresa May's humiliation in Salzburg last week, which um, everyone saw and everyone used to kind of promote their own uh, vision of Brexit. So Remainers saw the humiliation uh, on the continent and decided that that obviously showed we really needed to stay in the EU. Similarly, there are proponents of a Canada Brexit, a looser relationship with the EU based on its recently struck free trade agreement with Canada, who have kind of used Theresa May's humiliation in Salzburg to make their own case and argued that, right, this shows that Chequers isn't going to work. We need to go for Canada. That mistake has been made all the way up to the cabinet and foreign secretary level. Jeremy Hunt uh, was making the papers over the last few days saying that kind of thing. I think it's really interesting because the EU has said from the start that there's two models that we can go for. Norway, continued close alignment, uh, lots of benefits, lots of obligations. Canada, further away, less benefits, less obligations. The problem is, is that as the negotiation process has gone on, Britain's kind of locked itself into certain commitments on the Irish border uh, under this thing called the backstop. And we can't wriggle out of that now, even if, you know, I don't think we should want to wriggle out of it, but even if we did, we can't do that without going back on a pretty important international commitment. Canada doesn't get us any closer towards solving that. So Chequers has come in for a lot of scrutiny over the past few days. Um, and it's all about splitting the single market and you want to be in for goods and out for services and all that and the four freedoms and the EU doesn't like that. But underlying it all, the initial problem for us making any further progress with Brexit is the backstop and pivoting to Canada won't help us in that in any respect at all. And the one thing I know about that Canada deal is that it took seven years to negotiate. Is that one small detail maybe being overlooked too? 
Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it took seven years to negotiate. You look at, you know, EU arrangements with Japan. Um, it's a similar story. That's not to say that I necessarily think the EU is an incredibly cumbersome block that just can't get its skates on. Um, it's it's a bit of that, and it's hard to coordinate between the 28 member states. But really, I just think that trade is really complicated. And we talk about striking free trade deals around the world with New Zealand and the Philippines. I don't know if we actually have sat down, though, and thought about what we want. It sounds like a great thing, a free trade deal, but you need to go in with, a, with an idea of the concessions you're willing to make to get privileged access to that market, where you want the access, and what the result's going to be. Seems to be one substantial difference um, between Norway and Canada as countries. One of them is actually in Europe, and one of them isn't. Um, what kind of sense does it make for us to be pursuing the kind of deal that a country would get when it's thousands of miles away, when we're so closely interlinked, surely by nature of geography, into Europe and refugee situations and the Channel Tunnel and, of course, bordering uh, the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland as well? Well, I'm glad you say that because it's not very often you get to talk about on a podcast the gravity model of trade. <laughs> but it seems like I've now got an opportunity. Um, so the gravity model of trade basically says that, um, you know... We're going forward with technology and all the time there's advances in um, data sharing and uh, infrastructure and transport and so on. And so you might think that the relationship would be diminishing between geographical proximity and trade, strength of trade links, basically. So you'd think that we'd be trading more and more with countries further and further away as technology develops and transport gets better and we can phone them up and, and all that kind of thing. And actually, that's not happening to nearly the extent that you might think it would be. And this this was a debate during the Brexit referendum as people kept saying, we should strike deals with New Zealand on LAM. And the response came, that would be nice, um, but actually we should prioritise the close market, look at trade around the world, and everyone trades best with their closest partners, basically. Today, <laughs> a new think tank report came out about the gravity trade model for services. <laughs> so now we don't just know about goods. These blokes at Yale uh, have started looking at it for services as well. Um, so, you know, goods, services, the EU single market, it's all these different parts of it that we talk about. I, I would argue that, just as you said, Norway is in Europe. We want to be looking to our closest big trading partners, uh, not just for goods, but for services as well. And Canada just wouldn't be good enough in either of those respects. Great. So we're going to learn whether or not Brexit is or is not against the laws of physics then, I suppose, in the coming months. Alex Dean, thank you very much indeed for that. Now it's time to go over to the week's main conversation, uh, which this week is presented by Samir Rahim. Samir, over to you. Kwame Anthony Appiah, thank you uh, for coming to the Prospect podcast to talk about your new book on uh, identity, The Lies That Bind. Um, my first question is really about that title, because there seems to be a paradox at the heart of uh, our discussions of identity, talking about creed, country, colour, class and culture, the subjects you tackle in the book. It's incredibly important to people, you know, in certain circumstances, they're prepared to, to, to both kill and to, to die for it. But yet, at its heart, as you say in the title, it, it, it's, a, it's a lie or, or, or a mirage. So is identity very important or not very important at all? <laughs> um, can I say yes? <laughs> I mean, to both sides of that. I, I think that, um, you know, you, you have to accept that we have identities and that when they're doing harm, the right response can't be, okay, we should abandon identities. 
when they're doing harm, what you have to think about is how to improve them and how to put them to better use. When they're put to the best uses, they're very important for good. Unfortunately, when they're put to their worst uses, they're the source of some of the worst things that human beings do. Um, so on the one hand, you know, nations are held together by national identities. And in the name of national identity, you can build a social welfare state, you can um, uh, defend each other, you can guarantee minimum incomes and basic incomes for people. You can do all those things because we're all we're all British or we're all American or we're all German or whatever, or we're all Ghanaian. But also, of course, you can turn that into something horrible that we use to campaign against people. So I think they're, they're very important um, when, you know, they can be very important. On the other hand, you know, in many contexts, there are features of our identities that don't matter at all. Um, it's of very little importance most of the time when I'm doing um, philosophy, whether I'm an American citizen or a British citizen or a Ghanaian citizen, which are the three possibilities in my case. Um, citizenship doesn't really come into it in that context. And that's a large part of my life. So it's not like... Um, so I think, you know, w w they, some of them are important some of the time. Many of them are not important all the <laughs> much of the time. And the main thing is to try and keep them in, in balance and tr treat them with with the with due importance, with the right level of importance. I wonder whether different kinds of identities maybe have different um, claims and sets of power. Um, so something like race, for example, I mean, I can see that, you know, essentially an accident of skin tone. Um, uh, you could say, well, it's not very important. Um, these racial identities were all invented in the 19th century or whatever, um, and they have no essential significance other than the ones that we, we give them. I sort of get that argument. What about something like a belief system, like, like a religion, where people um, believe in an overarching deity and systems of uh, moral guidance? Um, surely they have more sort of substance to them. Well, they can have. I mean, it's back to your first question, are they important or not? I mean, so, for example, um, let's take Christianity to begin with. Um, that includes between one and two billion people on the planet. Some of them are atheists. I mean, you don't have to be a theist to be a member of some Christian congregation, so they believe one lot of things. Um, others of them, yes, are profoundly committed to belief in a creator God, say. Uh, and some of those, however, disagree enormously with each other about what significance that has for everyday life. So, yes, religious identities can be very thick and important to people. And I think it's not just the beliefs, it's the communities and the living together and the doing things together, all that, that's very important. But, um, but it doesn't do the same work for everybody under the label, so that's an important point. But yes, those can be very thick indeed. Um, on the other hand, so can racial identities for some people. For W.B. Du Bois, the great Pan-Africanist, African-American who ended up, uh, it went the opposite way from me, he was an American who became a Ghanaian. Um, um, for him, I would say his identity as, as, a, um, as, as a black person was enormously thick and important. It led him to write books about African history. It led him to co-found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in the United States, one of the main civil rights organizations in the United States, and so on. So I think, again, you know, you have to... There's no one answer 
for for any of these identities, for everybody, that people put them to different uses. But yes, yes, they can be enormously thick and important. And if you're, um, but again, we have to remember. I mean, Akil Bilgrami, who's a wonderful philosopher in New York, um, who teaches at the other end of the Manhattan Island for me at Columbia, um, wrote a wonderful essay once called "What Is a Muslim?" And Akil isn't a isn't a theist, but he is a Muslim according to him. So you have to be careful. People use these identities uh, in all sorts of different ways. Yes, yeah, speaking up that Islam point, which um, you write about in the book, um, there, there's a tendency, um, uh, certainly in this country and maybe in America as well, uh, when looking at Islam and seeing it as a sort of different religion, more sort of scripturally adherent. So looking for the beliefs of sort of and practices of modern Muslims and saying, well, that appears in your book, so therefore that's how you how you behave. Um, but it, that's quite a simplistic way of looking at things, isn't it? I think it is. Um, I mean, Islam, reasonably enough, is thought of as belonging with Judaism and Christianity because uh, the, the founding uh, traditions of all three are the same. And in, if, you look at the, if you look at all three, you can see over the long haul that what's in the scriptures just does different work at different times, changes over time, and so on. That's true in Islam as well. But um, the Bible, what Christians call the Bible, which, as most people know, is the conjunction of the old Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, which Christians call the Old Testament, and the New Testament, which is the part that Jews don't accept and has to do with what happened after Christ uh, came into the world. Um, That book, in its early parts, has a lot of very tough rules about how you're supposed to behave, almost all of which modern Christians ignore. Um, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are full of things about why you can't eat lobsters and why you you mustn't eat pork and uh, you must stone adulterers to death. And no serious uh, modern Christian community does any of those things. Um, does that mean they're not real Christians? I, I mean, I, you, you could say that if you like, but that seems silly to me. If, if, if you deny the label to most of the people who claim it, what's the point of the label? So it seems to me Islam is going to be like that too. Uh, Muslims, first of all, already differ enormously in what they think about all these things. There are five major legal traditions in, uh, in, in Islam. Um, there's a big old divide between Sunni and Shia Islam, but there are lots of other people. Uh, if you're in, in Pakistan uh, and you're um, Ahmadiyya, you're legally prohibited from saying you're a Muslim. Uh, but, of course, Ahmadiyya Muslims think they're Muslims. So there are huge divides, uh, uh, differences, let's say, within these broad traditions. And the idea that that just shows, I think, that they can't, if the text fixed it, they would all be the same. Uh, and the same is true for Christianity. And, and of course, Jews are divided. Where I live in, in New York City, they're divided between conservative, orthodox, and uh, reform. And, uh, and that's just the beginning of the divisions. When people use the term identity politics, um, often disapprovingly, um, they tend to be referring to um, uh, ethnic or religious minorities in the West uh, asking for certain rights or special dispensations. Um, but I wonder then, majorities don't tend to think of themselves as having an identity, do right, they? Right. But, but they do, don't they? Yes, they do. And um, it's an interesting feature, especially of sort of ethnic majorities. 
that they think of culture as something that minorities have, and they think of themselves as it were as just doing things. They don't think of it as a way of doing things. They think of it as what one does, um, and so uh, and sometimes this can lead to a kind of something you might want to be sympathetic with, which is a kind of sense, oh, well, they have this thing that we don't have. They have this interesting stuff, and we are boring and bland and um, white bread, as they might say in America. So I think um, these... Um, uh, once you see that, say, racial and religious identities are part of a system, that, that black and white are part of a system, that they're not separate things, they're, the boundaries, the, the, the heavily policed and, and argued about boundaries between them are part of one th system. And similarly, um, you know, uh, uh, for, for, for Muslims, for example, there's a profound uh, difference between Muslims and non-Muslims, and for Christians, there's a profound difference between Christians and non-Christians, but Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism in, in a country like the United Kingdom are all part of a system of uh, identities. Um, once you see that, you can see that even if something belongs to the majority, it's still associated with an identity. And so often when people are arguing against identity politics, they're just arguing for different identity politics, namely the politics that takes, uh, gives special attention to majority identities. Um, and I think it's better to see them all as, as kinds of identity politics and to distinguish not between identity politics and something else, but between different kinds of identity politics. Even the kinds of things that on the left people use people want to offer as an alternative to identity politics, namely a concern with the economy and so on, you can't really think about economic relations in, in a modern society without thinking about class. And class isn't just about money. It's about, it's a kind of identity. Um, in, in the United Kingdom, the, um, the political system in the United Kingdom is hugely the result of long historical process by which working men's associations in the early 19th century um, struggled against a state that was extremely hostile to working uh, people organizing themselves, and there were combination acts that made it a crime for working people to get together. Um, that process produced the labor unions, the trades union movement, and so on. That, of course, created the Labour Party. And um, all of that only works because working people, it's not because working people identify themselves simply by their income bracket. They identified themselves as people who had who had culture, who had associations, places where they hung out. Miners, you know, miners um, unions had had bars and clubs and places where you played bingo. Um, all of that identity around class is essential to doing things. I think about economic status. So let's let's. I completely agree that we in, in the United Kingdom, uh, where you live, and the United States, where I live are doing a very, very bad job of looking after questions of the economic conditions of the poor, of the poorest part of the population. But we're not going to be able to do anything about it if we pretend that it's just about money. It's, it's also about identity. It's about, it's about for example, um, a kind of sort of contempt for working people, which is part of the structure of certain kinds of middle-class attitude. There's a new category that um, has always been around, I suppose, but has only recently come into political discourse, which is the, the white working class. And that as a sort of endangered identity, which gathers together the economic um, concerns that you were talking about, but also um, that idea that um, uh, white working class cult culture is under threat specifically more than, say, other kinds of working-class culture. Do you think that there's any value in that argument, or do you think that it may be there's some dangers in looking at 
sort of white majoritarian identity politics? I think the difficulty with that is that there's a that the 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 challenge to which this sense of a of a shared identity among a sub portion, say, of President Trump supporters uh, is a response to. Uh, is a combination of things that I think we should respond to and and things we shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't accept. So part of what's going on is an anxiety about the loss of racial privilege. And one of the long things, actually, W.B. Du Bois, who I talked about earlier, discusses this going back into the 19th century in America. One of the, as it were, part of the deal between the people in charge in the United States and the white uh, poor was, we won't give you much money, but we will at least give you a status superior to the to the black uh, population. So there's a trade-off here. You you let us run this thing, uh, you won't be very rich, but at least you'll have this status. Well, I mean that's a simplification of a very complicated situation. But that that deal, of course, rightly, <laughs> has been broken down. We don't we we. It took a long time. It took a civil rights movement. It took a lot of work to to undermine the systems of racial privilege that did advantage even the poorest white people, even if they were disadvantaged heavily by class as well. So you can't respond to that by saying, oh, sorry, we took away your racial privilege here, give it back. That's completely morally, politically unacceptable. On the other hand, and here I can speak more about the United States because I know it better, um, the the situation of the, of the sort of post-industrial uh, white working class, and by the way, the post-industrial black working class, um, has been badly responded to by um, both the Democratic and the Republican parties in the United States. And something needs to be done about it, not because they're white, uh, but because uh, everybody um, needs to have decent circumstances of life. And if the jobs that went with that are gone away, you've got to do something about it. What you do about it is one of the things that we're not talking about. I mean, one possibility is, is not to create, not to make sure that there are uh, the old jobs, but to to have universal basic income and, and, and abandon the idea that everybody has to work all the time. I don't know what the answer is to that. I think that's a very hard set of questions. But we're not talking about it very much. And, and uh, of course, we are talking about it in the sense that there is a list course now about universal basic income. But it hasn't, in the United States anyway, come anywhere near real politics. It hasn't come anywhere near um, being discussed by people who are actually running for election. So I think... Um, so I would say, yes, um, we can respond to part of the uh, th- what uh, these people are organized around, which is the sense that they've been betrayed by a society that has um, done, on average, uh, pretty well, but where the benefits of the new economy have very overwhelmingly been concentrated in the top 20% and in the top 20% and the top 1% and in the top 1% in the top 0.1% of the, of the income distribution. allow me, I'll just say a slight personal anecdote. My my good friend um, is a Jamaican heritage um, and she has uh, in her style, she knows she, she likes to embrace sort of West African um, sort of colours and she, she Africa, Africa is a big part of her identity. But I always like to tease her that I'm actually much more African than she is, <laughs> yes. uh, because my family from East Africa and I spent a lot of time there when I was, I was younger and Swahili was spoken in the home and family lived there for a hundred years or so looking at us you know the assumption that there would be uh an outsider might have might be that 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 wasn't the case um 
And I wasn't wondering at the start of your book, you talk about you, you know your own identity and your own uh, Ghanaian side of your family and your own British side of your family. Um, and whether you know you you ever feel like you're having to sort of explain to people where you come from a lot of the time. Yes, I think um, it's a major topic of conversation with taxi drivers. Uh, who uh, it's funny. I've been going around talking about this book, and and it's literally true that in the last month in New York, twice Uber drivers have said to me, "Where are you from?" Expecting an answer that would allow them to bond with me. So in one case, it was an Egyptian who said, I asked you that because you look like an Egyptian to me. In the other case, it was a Sikh who said, <laughs> I thought you might be from India. Um, it's a generous-spirited thing they're asking me because they want to be able to say I'm, I'm their brother. I don't mind, except that I don't have any connection either with Egypt or with India. Um, and I think it happens all the time to people who are in various ways at the edge of these systems. I have a Norwegian brother-in-law and a, and a half-Norwegian nephew, three of them actually, and they are different colors. And the eldest one is blonde and has sort of gray eyes and so on and, you know, easily walks around in Oslo and nobody knows uh, that he isn't um, like everybody else, as it were. Um, but he lives in Namibia. He lives in Africa. He's married to a Namibian. He's, he's in some ways the most African of them. He's the only one who lives in Africa. Um, for him, uh, the question, you know, as it were, why are you here arises quite often because he's 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 the he's of African descent, but he's and he's living in Africa, but he looks like pretty much like a Norwegian. You know, if you're like that, if if like you, you're 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 of African ancestry over the last century, uh, but you don't look like people's typical thought of what an African looks like. Though, if you showed up in Egypt and put the right clothes on, then they could probably <laughs> they probably think you were Egyptian, since almost anybody can pass for Egyptian in the, in the right clothes. They come in all shades and colours. Because of that, uh, you know, you're going to have to. When, when you're claiming your African connection, you're going to have to do a bit more work than someone who's got you know dark curly hair and and dark skin, uh, a very dark skin. More and more people in the world are going to be in that situation. There's more and more mixing going on. I hope that'll mean that people are going to be more relaxed about these things. That they're going to be, that they're going to do what you do, which is joke with your Jamaican friend about it rather than uh, be uh, mad at each other and, and yeah, have the, arguments. The funny thing about it is that in a way. Um, it's a joke because she's she's right really and I and I'm I'm wrong she is really more connected to Africa because um her you know because her family were cut off from it it means something for her to try and go back and um rediscover it visit uh, West Africa think about her 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 history and her past in that way well it's funny and I can't speak for all East African Indians but um you know Swahili was a language that our parents spoke um, so my dad spoke it a lot in Zanzibar, where he grew up. Um, but now in this generation, it's pretty much lost, and people will go back to the Indian identity, the Indian languages, if they are to teach their children other other yes. languages. Although it was uh, living there for a hundred years, whether we we fully became African, well, in a way we did. But I think it, um, somehow, in all these jostling identities, Indianness and Britishness are sort of big enough, as it were, and the the African bit, East Africa bit, may, maybe will fade. Yes, fade well, I, I think that, you know, in in Africa, because the colonial system uh, put such enormous weight on its racial categories, <laughs> mm. which were basically uh, in, in East Africa and Southern Africa, um, white, black, Asian, 
uh, or Indian. It was it's sort of that's stamped <laughs> on the way in which these things have developed. So it's it's there are lots of South Africans of Asian of Indian ancestry are you know sort of get fed up with people saying you know well, you're not really African. I mean they they. If you've grown up in a country all your life and your parents did and your grandparents did and you've been there all along and you've never been to India, what's the point of insisting that in some sense you're Indian? Um, well, um, so I think, you, again, this is one of these places where you can't just do it on your own. If you want to change the understanding, you're going to have to engage in in cultural politics. You're going to have to say, look, uh, our country's going to work better if we don't think of it in those ways and if we think of it in these other ways. Just finally, you're also your chair of the Man Booker Judges, um, a chair of the Man Booker Prize um, this year, uh, the head judge. And I was wondering whether issues of identity, just across all the books you'd read, um, however many this year, many I'm sure, um, had, had come up a bit. Where, where, where is this, was it a strong theme in what you were reading? Um, yes. The, the, in, on the long list was a book by uh, Guy Gunaratne about London, which is full of relations between people of West Indian heritage and uh, people of uh, Muslim heritage from various places and people from, from Ireland, actually, uh, as well as kind of, as it were, um, the, 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 the normal white Londoners who, of course, themselves come from a great variety of places, even if they don't know it. Uh, the, the, one of the big historical novels that is on the short list um, uh, Washington Black uh, by uh, Essie Edujan, who's of Ghanaian heritage, by the way, though she's a Canadian. Uh, I mean, her name is a Ghanaian name. Um, that novel's about uh, somebody who's born a slave in the West Indies and in, on Barbados and ends up traveling around and ending up in London in the, 18, in the 19th century, in the 1820s, beginning in the 1820s. So I think it's very hard to write a novel about the present. I think it's actually very hard to write a novel at all at the moment uh, that doesn't in some way abut on these questions. For me, this is fascinating because the thought that gender, race, religion, nationality, say, are all things of the same kind is actually quite a modern thought. Uh, George Eliot would have thought it preposterous if you said to her, well, there's sex and nation and religion, and these are all the same things. She'd have said, what do you mean they're the same thing? So I think that, that you know, it's sort of so built into the way we now think about things that we see so many things through the lens of gender and as, uh, of, of identity. And as a result, um, you know, uh, novelists are kind of um, uh, sensitive to the culture. They reflect the culture. Uh, these issues arise over and over again, yes, in the novels. Kwame Antony Pear, thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. That was Samir Rahim there speaking to Kwame Anthony Appiah. Samir did a superb extended interview with him uh, last year, which you can read on our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you can also find writing on politics, culture, the arts, and more besides. I'm Jay Elwes. My thanks to Alex Dean and to Samir Rahim here in the studio. And our October issue is in the shops now. The cover story is on Twitter. What's it doing to our politics? Nothing good, it turns out. But there's also a profile of John McDonnell, the Labour's shadow chancellor. And Alan Rusbridger looks into Oxford University's entrance system. His verdict could do better. Anyway, you can find all that and more at your local newsagent or on our website. That's prospectmagazine.co.uk. And while you're there, you might notice that our subscription rates are eminently reasonable. Anyway, be sure to tune in next week to the Prospect Podcast.